Welcome to the Hill City Church Podcast. We are a church family located in Springfield, Missouri. You can learn more about us and support our ministries at hillcitysgf.org. Thank you for having me here. I am with your kids quite a bit, uh, and I love that, but I love adult time, so thank you for having me here this morning to be with the adults. Um, So, man, and it's been good to worship with you, but we're not done yet. We are going to continue our worship this morning by looking at God's word, Psalm 27. So if you have your Bibles, would you look uh, and find Psalm 27? And as you're doing that and you're preparing your hearts, your minds to to receive God's word, I want to tell you a story that, that might help us do that. And the story comes from the BBC newsroom. They also made a movie about the story. I'm going to give you the BBC version. I think it's a little bit more accurate. And it's about this, this man. His name is Sura. And actually, the story begins uh, when Sura was five years old. And he's living in India. And he's with his mom and his older brother. They're a poor family. And so during the day, uh, the mom would go off to work. And Sura and his older brother were left to educate themselves in the ways of the world because they couldn't afford a good school. And so they would go out into the neighborhood and into the city and they would just play and discover and explore and do all kinds of awesome boy stuff. And Sura loved it. But at night, they had their own jobs. They were poor enough that they had to have their own jobs. So they would go to the train station and they sweep out the cars. And this particular day, Sura was probably playing a little bit too much during the day. Because at the end of his shift, he got tired and he laid down in the train car and he fell asleep. Well, when he woke up, he was no longer in this small Indian town. He was in a much bigger Indian town, Calcutta. And his brother wasn't there, and he walked out of the car, and and he was lost. And he was lost big time. Because he's five years old, you remember, at this time. And um, and he didn't. he was illiterate. He didn't know where... Uh, his mom's phone number, where he lived. He didn't know the name of his town. And to make matters worse is the dialect that was spoken in Calcutta wasn't his dialect. And so he couldn't find anybody to help him. And and very quickly, this five-year-old learns how to survive on life in the streets in Calcutta. And so he's begging for money and for food, and he's sleeping on the streets at night, and, and life is horrible for him. He doesn't have anything, but if he had everything, he would have traded it all for, as you can imagine, this one thing, which was to be back with his family. It wasn't necessarily the hunger that kept him up at night. It was this one thing that burned in his heart, which was to be with his family. He never gave up on trying to find that one thing, and so he found this orphanage, and he says, guys, can you help me? And the orphanage kind of looked into it and they found out that he was probably on the train for about 14 hours. And they thought about all the possibilities of where he could have come from in 14 hours. And they say, no, it's like too much. We're never going to be able to find your family. But what we can do is we could find you adopted family. And so when Sura considered the alternative, he says, okay, find me adopted family. So they found a family in Australia and he moves to Australia And objectively, it was a good situation because there was this family that loved him and loved each other. And uh, and he had a place to sleep. He had food. um, And it was a good thing. But he never 
forgot his one thing. At night, it would still burn in his heart. And so as he grew up, he's like, all right, I'm going to get the map out. And he found Calcutta, and then he found all the different cities that he could have come from after being on the train for 14 hours. And so he makes this big, long list. And then every night, he would, he would find one of the towns, and he would get Google Earth, and he would hover over these towns. And day after day, probably week after week, maybe even month after month, he, he doesn't recognize anything. But this one night, he's hovering over uh, this particular town using Google Earth, and he says, that river? I played in that river before. And that bridge, I've, I've jumped off that bridge before and I threw a rock at that dam and it just goes crazy from there because he finds this town and he recognizes it. And then he finds the apartment building that he used to live in. And so from there he goes to India and it just gets crazy. He finds the apartment building, he finds his family, and he finds this one thing. And the story goes viral. Newsrooms from all over the world are coming to, 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 to tell this story, like one of the best stories that this world has given us in the last 10 years. They make a movie of it. I haven't seen the movie. As I, as I was reading this, I looked it up, and it's, it's lying. Uh, so I don't know if it's any good, but they made a major motion picture about this story because it's so good. Um, so at the end of this article, I'm reading this, and they asked Sura, it's like, hey, you were looking for this one thing for so long, and you found it. Like, how do, how do you put that into words? And this is what he said. He said, he says, it's a pressure off and I, and I sleep better at night. Close quotation. Now, I don't know what I was expecting him to say, but I was expecting something maybe a little bit more. I mean, this is the main character from like the best story that the world has given us in the last 10 years. I think I was probably expecting like the movie version. But he said, I'm, I'm sleeping better at night. Well, this morning, we're going to look at David in Psalm 27. And, and David was looking for one thing, too. And he couldn't find what he was looking for. He couldn't find his one thing in this world. Or at least anything that he was content with. He wouldn't have been content with Surah's response. And so he goes to God, and God says, and he tells God, I'm looking for this one Thing. If I just have this one thing, God, and God gave it to him. And this morning, we're going to look at David's response to getting that one thing, which is Psalm 27. So hopefully I've given you enough time to find Psalm 27. Let's start and let's read it in its entirety. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble he will keep me safe in his dwelling, he will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. 
your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. And you, uh, you have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Savior. Though my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desires of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Take heart and wait for the Lord. All righty. That is the word of God. So let's, uh, let's, as they say, unpack this. And when I look at this psalm, this is the way that I organize it as I try to get the most out of Psalm 27. Is I see this and I see that in this psalm there are two problems and there are two solutions. So easy enough. Let's start with problem number one. So problem number one I see when I read this is that life is really hard and that it's full of trouble. And so you might say, what, what part of David's life was he going through when he wrote this psalm? And I would say any or all of it. Because David was always in trouble and he was always experiencing some hardship. I mean, from the beginning to the end. At the beginning of his life, he was being told by his father that he wasn't good enough. His first part-time job was to, to be a shepherd and to fight wild animals. And it's like right here that I know that David's life was probably harder than mine because my first time job was to work with cold cuts at Honey Baked Ham. And the hardest part of my job was to wear a hair nut and these little plastic gloves. But David, David was fighting lions and bears. And that's just the beginning. And then from there, it doesn't get any easier. I mean, he's, he's having to fight killer giants. Uh, run from assassins, hide from the king. His wife left him. His best friends were betraying him all the way to the end when his son comes to him at an old age and says, Dad, I hate you. I want your stuff, and I'm willing to kill you for it. So at what point did David learn that life was really hard and that it was full of trouble? Probably pretty close to day one and every day thereafter. He describes this trouble in, in this psalm, and these are some of the things he says about the troubles that he experienced. He tells us that life's troubles are bad. It says in verse 2, he tells us that the troubles that he experienced is like when the wicked advanced against me to devour me. One version says when, when, when the wicked come to devour his flesh. When I read that, I'm like, that's, that's not good. That is, that is bad. And you might think that that may just be poetic language. Maybe, but maybe not. Do you remember when David killed Goliath and he held David uh, or Goliath's head above the crowds and he says, who will defy the living God? If I was a Philistine here in that, every day of my life and probably every day of my kid's life, sometime during the day, I would say, man, I hate that David. I hope somebody cuts his head off and worse. His enemies did want to devour his flesh. His troubles were bad. And he tells us also that his troubles aren't going anywhere. In verse 3 it says that an army besieges me. So if I can remember from 6th grade social studies, 
Like when, when you're trying to siege a castle or a stronghold, yeah, you play the long game. You camp outside that stronghold and you don't go anywhere because you want to interrupt the supply chain and, and you want to weaken them by starving them out. David says, my troubles are like that. My enemies want to besiege me. They're not going anywhere. And he also tells us that they're everywhere. In verse 6, it says, the enemies surround me. So you might be thinking, man, maybe if David just stays like really close and doesn't go anywhere, maybe he can avoid trouble. And David says, no, that's, that's not going to work because life's troubles, my life troubles are personal. It tells us in verse 10 that my, my own father and my mother betray me or forsake me. So troubles aren't just out there, they're in here. And he also tells us that troubles come in all forms. Up until this point, he's used a lot of military language to describe his troubles. But in verse 12, it says, false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. So for him, uh, troubles could come in a military campaign or it can come in a slip of a tongue. So he tells us that, that life's troubles are really hard. They are not going anywhere. They're everywhere. They're personal and they come in all forms. So at this point in my preparation, I'm like, man, Psalm 27 is kind of a bummer. And you're probably thinking the same thing, but hold on, because it gets worse before it gets better. And the reason it gets worse is because this isn't just a historical document that God gave us. This is God's word, and God gives us his word so that we might know who God is and, and, and know the greatness of his glory, but it also tells us who we are and the depths of our brokenness. And so we, if we're going to get the most out of Psalm 27, is, is we need to read ourselves into the psalm. And when we see uh, David's troubles, uh, we need to see that that's, that's our life and that that is our condition. And if you consider yourself a Christ follower this morning, that's not probably true. That's definitely true. In the New Testament, it says, in John chapter 15, it says, is a servant greater than a master? If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. In the next chapter, verse 16 of John, he just gets blunt and says, you will receive trouble. You will have trouble in this life. Now, I'm, I'm going to overcome this world, but right now when you're in the world, you will have trouble. Well, thank goodness that, that the psalm is not done there. Uh, because that's a problem, but there's a solution to the problem, and that's what comes next, and that's actually what David is most excited about. And the solution to this problem is that even though life is really hard, this is the solution, is that God is really, really good. And the beauty that comes with being in his presence is better than anything or any comfort that this world could ever give. So David is pumped about this solution. So excited about this solution that from line one of verse one, he goes into it almost to say, guys, I have something important to tell you. I'm going to tell you why it's important in a second, but just listen up. And here's the solution. So let's look at that verse one. He tells us, the Lord is my light and my salvation. 
Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? In other words, David is saying, because of God, because of Yahweh, I have light. So there are these videos that, uh, man, I just have watched a lot of these videos of these kids that are, that are born blind or can't see very well. And, and uh, somebody has the insight of, of filming them as they get this special pair of glasses or after surgery. And they've never seen light before, but then they put on the glasses and then they see light for the first time. They see their mom's face, they see color. And the videos from this point are like all the same. It is like the, the, the kid has this stunned look on his face as he sees light for the first time. And, uh, and then there's this like mixture of like laughter and crying at the same time. It's this beautiful thing and there's tons of videos and you just, you just keep watching them and, and, and you never get tired of them. But if you were to ask these kids, is light a good thing? They'd say, no, it's not a good thing. It's the best thing because I was in the darkness, but now I'm in the light. And David would agree. David would say, I don't have to scrounge around in the dark looking for half-truths and lies to fulfill me because that was killing me, but the Lord is my light. And because he's my light, I'm no longer dying in the darkness, but I was saved, I was redeemed, I was restored, and I have salvation. David is saying, I have my light and my salvation, but it gets better than that. Because it is secure. Because God is my stronghold. It's not going anywhere. And David says, when I have a light like that, when I have a salvation like that, and when I have a stronghold like that, I don't need to fear. No fear. That sounds, that sounds pretty good. I'm listening, David. Um, let's take a closer look at that. But before we do, I think we're obligated to, to really look at what, you know, this, what David is not saying. Because there's this tendency when you read through this psalm to think that somehow that if we just trust and obey God, that, that he's obligated to, to wipe out our enemies and to remove our troubles. But the problem with that is, is, that, is that psalms doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't say that. No, what it does say like in this psalm is, is there are times when David's enemies, they do stumble and fall. And, and God certainly has a, a hand in that. Um, and just look at the, the ministry of Jesus. I mean, Jesus was always seeing these worldly woes that people wanted to get removed. Like people would come up to him blind and, and he would give them sight. Or they would be afraid because they were in a storm and God would call the storm. And God does these things because he's a good God. He's not deaf and blind to our hardships and to our troubles. I mean, he sees those things and he's moved. And sometimes, if not a lot of times, he, he removes them. But he's not obligated to. And he doesn't promise it. And he probably never will. Because this is the, this is the deal. Is God designed our hearts, he designed our souls, not to be satisfied by like good things that he might give us, they were designed to be satisfied by the best thing and the best thing only. And so these good things that we are asking for God, the real purpose of those is that they might push us into the best thing. But, but something that I struggle with, and I, I don't think that I'm ever going to get on this side of eternity, 
is that these troubles and these hardships, a lot of times they more effectively and efficiently push us and draw us into the best thing more than any comfort and ease in this life could ever do. God is, God is the best thing. I mean, the best thing is the best thing, and God's not going to compromise the best thing. He's not going to compromise the best thing for him, and he's not going to compromise the best thing for us. And he's not going to do it for our comfort and for our ease. So the first time I think that, you know, that this started to like resonate me with me, that the best thing is the best thing and the good things in life may not be as good as you think, uh, was when my early 20s, and I was, I was really alone. I was, I was I, in hindsight, I didn't admit it, but I was depressed. And so I prayed to God. I said, God, I want, I want a wife, and, and I want this wife to, to love Jesus. And then I went through the criteria. I want her to be beautiful and talented and smart and athletic and laugh at my jokes and, uh, and all, of, all of that. And here's the deal. God heard my prayer, and he answered my prayer. I met Catherine and like she's just checking all the boxes, um, and 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 then and then Catherine's also she's in her at the same time she's in her her young twenties, and she's praying God I want this husband, and she gives her criteria I, you know, I want him to love Jesus uh, I want him to be sensitive and a good listener, and have a six pack and play the guitar, and uh, be able to pick up his own socks. Well, well, for, for, Catherine, for Catherine, her prayer didn't get answered as well as, as mine did. Because, because other than loving Jesus, maybe like most of the time, like there were a lot of things that she didn't get. But after being, it was meant to be. We get, we're, we've been married and we've been married for 10 years. And after 10 years of marriage, if you were to ask us individually, like where's your joy, where's your joy level at? Both of our joy levels are, are pretty much at the same level. Actually, hers may be a little bit higher. And the reason that it is is because she has the best thing. And so when fear or anxiety or disappointment come in uh, about whether a good thing in this life, in this worldly life, is going to come and go, she can, she can tell that fear and that disappointment like, hey, your power is not powerful here because I have the best thing and it's the best thing so let's get back to 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 psalms and um what uh what david is saying because david is 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 obsessed about this one thing and so he um he gets into it in verse four and so if you're going to try to get the most out of chapter 27 be prepared that you got to get the most out of verse 4 because this is the very heart of what David is trying to say. It says in verse 4, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of the life, all the days of my life, and to seek him in his temple. Or sorry, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. So David is saying, man, if I just have this one thing, then I have everything. And so what is this best thing? What is this one thing? And as simple as it sounds, is God himself. And so David is saying that if I just have unbroken oneness 
and nearness to a God who has this character, whose character is majestic yet but is balanced with humility, who is powerful and mighty but has this overflowing love that is intriguing and profound and is never more intriguing than when it finds the lowly and the downtrodden. Or this God who is full of mercy and grace but who is always perfectly righteous and moral. Or whose, whose faithfulness is incredible despite being surrounded by the faithlessness of his creation or his promises. His promises who are steadfast, as we'll learn, no matter the cost. David says, if I could just be close to a God like that, then my soul would be ultimately satisfied. So if you've ever been around a person like David that, that, that thinks like David like that, first of all, you'll know that, that those people are, are rare and that they're weird. Uh, and I mean that in the best in the best way possible, because they're obsessed with being in the presence of God, and they'll, and they'll use words like, "Man, being in the presence of God like that is a joy and a delight." Uh, but they'll also tell you that those words fall uh, incredibly short, because at most they might just point you to this unspeakable and indescribable uh, experience of knowing and being known by God. Um, and if you have never been in God's presence like that or don't have an experience like that or just haven't been in it uh, in, in this way, in this deep way, this is where, like, in the sermon, I've really kind of struggled about how to describe to you that or to convince you that that may be the case. And, and part of it is because I kind of struggle with that myself. And, and I think that one of the reasons we struggle with that, too, is, is that the world has done a really good job of conditioning our hearts and our minds to think that that this one thing, this idea of being close to God is, is enough. Like they've conditioned us to think that that idea is ridiculous. Um, and that's a lie. Now they might soften the lie and they might say like, yeah, being like close to God is, is, part, of, is part of it. But man, you really need a certain amount of money and you need a certain look and you need a certain style and you, you need a certain health. And if you don't have that thing, there's going to be a hole in your life. And, and, and really the world tells us, can you, really, can you really expect this abstract God to fill this practical hole? So I've struggled with trying to combat that this morning in preparation for you. And I tried to combat that in my own life. It's hard to do. It's, it's indescribable. It's hard to understand. But I thought maybe if I just showed you this picture... Um, about somebody that, that, that was able to do that. Um, and this, this picture comes from John chapter 4 about this woman. She's a Samaritan and she goes out to the well in the middle of the day. And she comes out to the well in the middle of the day because she can't go to the well in, in the early parts of the day because she has a shady reputation with, the, with, with men. And, um, and so the women of the town, they don't, they don't want to be around that. They rejected her. And honestly, she probably doesn't want to be around them either. She has enough shame in her life that she doesn't need to be ridiculed by this lady. So she comes out in the middle of the day uh, to get water. And she is a Samaritan woman, and she finds this Jewish man there. And there's this awkwardness there because uh, Samaritans hate Jews, and Jews hate Samaritans. And this Jewish man was Jesus, and Jesus breaks the ice and says, Ma'am, can I have a drink of water? And she's like, that's, that's quite the question to ask. 
you being a Jewish man and me being a Samaritan woman? And he says, yeah, but if you knew who I was, then you would ask me for a drink of water uh, and I would give it to you because uh, I'm, you know, because I would give you the living water. And she said, um, well, that, you know, that's, that's kind of interesting. He's like, well, I, I can tell it to you. Why don't you go get your husband and I'll explain that to you. And, um, and, she, and she says, I actually don't have a husband. And he's like, that's right. You've had five husbands and the, and the guy you're living with right now is not, uh, is not your husband. And so she was stunned and she was probably a little bit embarrassed. And so she just like changes the subject and she says, uh, you know, yeah, you must be a prophet. Like, tell me this, like the Samaritans say that we worship on this mountain and the Jews say that you worship in Jerusalem. What's the deal with that? And Jesus says, okay, you want to talk about this now? So let's talk about this. And uh, he says, well, there's, there's a time coming when uh, that you don't need to, it doesn't matter where you are to be in God's presence. You can be in God's presence anywhere uh, coming soon because God is spirit and he desires uh, people that worship him in spirit and truth. And then he reveals himself to be the Messiah uh, to this woman. And this woman realizes that she's been in the presence of God and that she's been learning about how she can be in the presence of God forever as long as she worships in spirit and truth. And everything changes for this lady. She, like, her, her buckets, she drops it. She forgot what she was doing. She goes back into this town, this town where is the source of her shame and her ridicule. But this time when she goes back into the town, she has this joy. And she goes to the people that ridicule her, but all she wants to do is tell them about Jesus. And I, and I think about this lady, and I think about how much was this, like, there was a lot that was the same for this lady um, after meeting Jesus. I mean, she still had to get water. She still probably, at least for a time, had to uh, live with this, this dude that wasn't her husband. And, um, and she still, her past was still her past. Uh, but then I, I'm amazed about how much has changed. Because before this, she was controlled by the shame and her ridicule. And, and it, it was, it, it's, it's what drove her. But now... There's something that's changed. She has this joy. And so I think about what if you would have gone to this lady 24 hours before this happened and you would have told her that it was going to happen. And you said, hey, you know what? You're going to meet this guy tomorrow and you're no longer going to be controlled by your shame and your ridicule. But you're going to meet this guy and then you're going to find this joy that comes with being in his presence and it's going to change everything. And she would probably say that that's ridiculous. Well, it's ridiculous until it happens and then is glorious. It's a miracle. It's hard to explain. And you might think that it goes from ridiculous to glorious just like that. But there is a tremendous effort that, 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 that takes place at that moment. And, and it is miraculous. And that's our next problem. So this morning, if you're like, man, I, I, want, I want God's presence like that. You see the Samaritan woman and says, I want that in my life. Well, you need to know about this next problem first. Is that even though we may really want to be in God's presence, it doesn't just happen automatically. And it doesn't happen automatically is because it requires effort, specifically a tremendous amount of effort from God. And so as David moves away from the heart of the psalm, from, from verse 4 into like the second part of the psalm, 
you, you hear this nervousness uh, in his tone, and, and you think that uh, he, he starts to think, maybe, maybe God's not going to put this tremendous amount of effort into that. And you see that in verse 9. He says, do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Uh, do not re- uh, reject me or forsake me, God my Savior. So here, actually, David has every right to be nervous. He has every right to wonder if God is going to hide his, his face from David. Because David, like us, are sinners and God hates sin. In Colossians 3, it says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to the earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, because of the sin in our lives, the wrath of God is coming. So no how, no way is, is, is our sinners going to get into the presence of God. And so our, our biggest hardship, our biggest trouble is that our sin-filled lives would be held up before a holy God. And in that moment, we would realize that we, in and of ourselves, are never going to be able to find a way, if it was up to us, to be in God's presence. But God can do that, and it does require a tremendous amount of effort. But God does it. And that's the solution to this problem is that at great cost to himself, God made sure that we would have what we really want and what we really need, which is himself. So David knew there was a solution to this problem. He says in in verse 10, he says that the Lord will receive me. Um, And then at the end of the psalm, he says that I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He knew that there was a, a, a solution to the sin problem, but he didn't know exactly what it was. But us here today, we know in full what David knew in part. Because we don't just know that there's a solution. We have the, we have, we have the opportunity to know the solution, which is Jesus. And um, the tremendous amount of effort that Jesus put forth was that he was crucified on a cross. And it was the most tremendous amount of effort that has ever been displayed and probably will ever be displayed. And when he was on the cross, he took the penalty of sin that was for us. And in that moment, God told him, go away. And he denied him for the time. Jesus is one thing. So that for me and for you and everyone else, who believes we might never be told to go away and that we would have our one thing. Romans says it well. In chapter 8 of Romans, and we're going to say 32 and then go skip down to to 39. And uh, if you're on the worship team, I would invite you up. We're almost done. Um, It says here in chapter 8, verses 32, it says, um, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? 
And then in verse 39, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So through Christ crucified and through faith in Jesus, our greatest trouble, our greatest hardship that we could ever face has been cast aside. And our one thing, our greatest pleasure is made possible.